Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. This is the fastest growing podcast on the East Coast. Self-proclaimed, there's actually no evidence to support that, but I am your host, Mike Milner, and for this episode, I brought in my friend, Alex McMahon, and we had some fun just talking about different myths in the fitness industry and how to break down quality information from bullshit information. Um, So we had a a good talk, and if you guys can do us a favor and leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, it is the best way to help the show grow. And if you enjoy the episode, please screenshot, tag on Instagram, myself, at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner, and tag Alex. I'm going to leave his IG handle in the show notes, so please tag us both and enjoy the episode. All right, guys, I am joined with my boy and now accountability partner through this three-week mini-cut, Alex McMahon. Thank you for joining me, bro. Hey, man, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into ruffling some feathers and busting some myths, I want to find out, which I always love to hear, like how you got into the fitness industry. What was your like first introduction? And then what was that point where you wanted to make it a career? Like you realized that I can do this, you know, as my as my career. Yeah, so I got in like almost kind of backed into this career a little bit differently than your average person. So I started off as a preschool teacher. And that's what I did for about five years. And when I very first got into teaching, it was about it was me and roughly 13 kids in a classroom all on my own every single day. And when I started was right when the kind of advent of like paleo, gluten free, you know, dairy free diets started to get very, very popular. And so every kid in the class had to be on a different diet. And I was responsible for making sure that they didn't get dosed with these foods that they weren't supposed to have. And every other day was like a Christmas party or, you know, a birthday party or something like that. So I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off all the time, trying to make sure that these kids didn't have, you know, a cookie that they weren't supposed to have or something. And it just really brought to light for me how powerful nutrition is as a tool um, to help people get healthier, to lose weight, to kind of achieve their peak state that they could be in. And for me, there was always a lot of things that I dealt with. You know, I grew up with learning disabilities and have the most extreme energy crashes in the middle of the day. Um, I was always very active as a kid, but I was always overweight. And it's like at the age of 26, you have to admit it's no longer really baby fat. You're just kind of overweight. And so seeing the changes that nutrition had on all the kids that I was working with, it made me question how my own dietary habits had kind of affected me. And so I went on this kind of crazy path of trying every diet that I could get underneath the sun. And starting off like veganism, vegetarianism, trying more of a Weston A. Price diet, trying keto, doing calories and macros, going low-carb paleo, fasting. And so along the way, I found a framework that ended up being very, very effective for me. And people would see me leading from the front and making the changes and getting results. And so I became a very natural resource for a lot of other people in my life, whether that was at my jujitsu gym or people that I was just chatting with. I mean, you couldn't get me to shut up about this stuff. And so I ended up, even though I was working as a preschool teacher, spending all my free time researching nutrition, reading books, studies, all these kinds of things. And so at a certain point in time, um, a girl who I was dating at the time, her dad was a very successful businessman and I'm sure still is. And we were sitting out in the backyard having a beer and he was like, Alex, you know, you found what you absolutely love and what you're passionate about. Go back to school, get a few letters behind your name and then work your ass off and you'll be successful. And so after that, I found the nutritional therapy practitioner program. Uh, I went through that and then I honestly kind of pussyfooted around things a little bit and didn't dive fully into doing coaching. 
And so I was still working a warehouse job at the time because teaching had kind of ended for me. And I was in, I was in this interesting in-between phase where I wasn't quite doing nutrition coaching full time, but I also wasn't working another career full time. I was kind of in between writing blogs, working with people whenever I could. And me and the guy who owned the warehouse had a disagreement one time. And he goes, well, maybe I should find somebody else to do this job. And I, I felt so strongly pulled to nutrition coaching that, you know, I could have had five clients barely, you know, barely getting things started and making significantly more money at the warehouse. But I was always way more pulled towards working as a coach than I ever was working at the warehouse. And so he goes, well, maybe I should find somebody else to do this job. And I go, you should. I was like, I have to take my shot at coaching. If it doesn't work out, I'll recover but I, I have to at least give it an honest try. And so I quit there on, on the drop with probably a handful of clients and, you know, worrying about bills and everything like that. And haven't really looked back since, man. It's, it's been a hell of a journey. There's been a lot of learning. And uh, I feel like the past few years, my growth as a coach, but also my growth as a business owner has exponentially increased just due to getting mentors, due to getting my own coaches and just continually being hungry and trying to learn uh, more and become a better coach. So I have as many tools in my tool belt to help people just improve their own lives. Wow. That's awesome. I didn't know that story. And there's a lot of powerful moments that you, that you had. And I think it's one of those things that our instincts never lie. And it's just, sometimes we try to ignore them for as long as we possibly can, but then you have that like sink or swim moment and you took it and ran with it. And um, that's awesome. So I actually thought that I had tried every single diet there is, but I can be honest and say that I've never gone vegan. So you've got a leg up on me there. Um, so, so do you think there was anything like about teaching as you kind of, you know, that was your first, you know, you were, you're teaching preschool. Do you think there was anything, um, that kind of prepared you for nutrition coaching and dealing with your clients now that there was some, you know, crossover? Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's one of the interesting questions that I get from people is they ask me, do you miss teaching? And I go, I don't think that I'm not a teacher anymore. I just think that the way that I do it is in a completely different field now. I think one of the most important things that I learned as a teacher was how do you take something that's really complicated? How do you break it down into the need to know bullet points? And then how do you express that to somebody? And it, as much as we want to think that we are these highly evolved beings as, as adults, you know, a lot of the principles that help people to change behavior as a kid also apply to adults. So one of the most important things that I learned as a teacher is, you know, you have to figure out how to better relate to a kid to bring things to their level and to get them to care about something. So let's say that there was a kid who was a picky eater. And I used to actually deal with this a lot because I was in nutrition while I was still teaching. Um, parents would come to me with their picky eater and they'd be like, you know, my kid will eat vegetables in your class and they won't eat vegetables at home. What are you doing here? I go, well, have you ever given them a reason to care about eating vegetables? Have you made it fun? Have you made it interesting at all? And the parents would go, well, no, I just tell them to eat them. I go, well, let them play with their food, you know, like get them involved in the process of cooking and making a green smoothie or something like that. You have to make it fun as a way to make them care. And so for the people that I work with now, it's the exact same thing. You know, you have to relate the unsexy aspects of nutrition and consistency and being aware of what you're consuming to the person's overall goal that they care about. And I think that that's one of the most powerful things that I take from teaching over into this career is that, you know, you have to take the, the unsexy and you have to have a real melding of what you want to happen with what they want to happen. You have to figure out a way to use that to kind of motivate and get them driving everything forward. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And as you were saying, like, let the kids play with their food. I had this image of like, 
you get to eat this broccoli or you have you get to throw this broccoli if you eat this one, like setting up a little game like that with your kids. So a little parenting advice right there. Let your kid throw the broccoli across the room and then they, they have to eat the, the other one. But um, so with education, I think there comes this um, you know issue in our industry where some misinformation is is constantly spread. And unfortunately, in the day of social media, there really isn't a way to kind of govern that or for the consumer to know what is quality information and what's not. And, you know, we're going to kind of touch on a bunch of different examples and try and sift through, um, you know, just some myths that are thrown out there. And, um, you know, so right off the bat, let's just jump in. Let's talk about some common misconceptions or common myths that are tossed around in our industry and give some practical information and, and kind of how to unpack that stuff. So um, I'm just going to toss it over to you first and tell me like what is number one like comes to the top of your mind when you think of common myths in the fitness industry? Um, the number one would probably be that carbs, fats, sugar, or some kind of other XYZ food that's been demonized uh, causes fat gain magically. And so I think that one of the biggest things is that it's very easy to make things myopic, right? Where you focus on one specific thing and you go, okay, well, it's carbs or it's fats or it's sugar or it's that you're having too much fruit that's making people to gain body fat. Um, and I think that one of the biggest reasons that people do this is because they have a camp, right? Where it's like you're, you're low carb or you're keto or you're demonizing sugar or essentially you eat like a low fat diet and all, all these different kinds of things where people are removing the actual, um, they're removing the focus from where it matters, right? Which is if you are in a calorie deficit, if you're eating an appropriate amount of calories for yourself, then you are going to be able to lose weight. They've, they've shown this in study after study that the biggest driver of anybody's ability to lose weight has always been and will always be your calorie intake. Um, and it's because it's one of the very first laws of thermodynamics. Like you can't create or destroy energy. It can be passed on from one form to another. And so if you're not eating enough energy to be able to store body fat, you can't magically create it. So, you know, a, a perfect example, obviously not a good one would be, I'm sure you've probably heard of this, Mike, the Twinkie study, the guy who's, uh, his name's Dr. Mark Hobb from Kansas State University. Yep. You heard about that? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So essentially, this guy got really tired of always talking to his um, students about different diets because uh, he was a professor of human metabolism and nutrition. And so what he did was he's like, I'm going to prove that it has nothing to do with the diet. It literally just comes down to calories. And like I said, I don't advise that anybody does this, but he literally went on an entirely junk food diet. He ate Twinkies, Ho-Hos, um, breakfast cereals, uh, hostess cakes, chips. Like he literally ate nothing but junk food but was in a really extreme calorie deficit, right? And so he was, I think he was a 210 pound guy and he was eating 1800 calories a day. And at the end of the 10 week study, he had lost 27 pounds and had dropped his cholesterol significantly. And so obviously I know that one big thing that you and I absolutely agree on is that food quality definitely matters. But if you're eating too much of any food, you can gain body fat. It, it isn't just carbs or fats or sugars or anything like that. Now, all of those are really easy to overeat because they hit on that reward center in your brain that evolutionarily makes us want to continue eating past the point of us being satiated. But I think that to, to put the focus on one specific food, whether it's carbs or fats or sugar, removes the focus from where it really should be placed for people who are trying to lose weight, which is their overall calorie intake. And that's, that's one of the biggest ones that I think 
uh, a lot of people get tripped up on. And I'd be curious to hear, like, in your experience, um, do you see that a lot? And is it something that with your clients, you have to kind of demystify for them? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that it's one of those things from a mindset perspective. And you mentioned it, like, we want to belong to a camp. So it's so easy to, you know, to say that, um, you know, I'm keto, I'm paleo, I'm low fat, whatever your dietary camp is. And we become so dogmatic about it. And it's like, you know, if something works that that doesn't align with your dietary protocol, it's almost like people get offended. And it's like, no, this is the only way to do it. And I'm not sure. I think it's just, you know, human nature. We like to put ourselves into these boxes and feel like, you know, we have this team of support. So I have other, you know, keto people who have my back and I've got other, you know, paleo people who have my back. But I think that uh, we we really just have to, you know, understand that, you know, we're all in this for the same reason. Hopefully that, you know, that reason is for better health and longevity and, you know, just feeling more confident and better about ourselves. So, you know, trying to align so strongly with a, you know, with a dietary camp and and demonizing something where all the evidence points to the opposite. It's just, you know, and they've actually done studies on this too. I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I, I nerd out on psychology, but like, you know, they've done studies where you'll, you'll take somebody who has a very strong existing belief and then present them with hard evidence to the contrary. And like almost 70% of the time, they still will stick with that existing belief. So, you know, showing somebody a study like the Twinkie study and, some, you know, it's unfortunate, but sometimes it doesn't even do the trick. And I think that um, you, you kind of have to earn the trust when we're, when we're talking about dealing with clients. Um, it's about education first and then earning their trust. And, and like you said about relating to them and connecting with them so that they, you know, kind of will experiment and then see, okay, like I can tell my body is responding better if I'm not, you know, completely afraid of this one food group and, and try to find some semblance of balance. And, you know, it's just a matter of, of uh, opening their eyes in a way that's that's relatable and understandable. And I think it starts for sure with education. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like that need to belong to, to a camp, like where do you think that stems from? Like just from, uh, you know, in, in our industry, why, why we became so divisive. I think that probably one of the big things is that um, it has a really good resale value, right? Where like, if, if you have a specific camp, if you create an us versus them mentality, it's much easier to pull your, pull people onto your side of the fence. And I think that with a lot, I think a lot of it probably comes down to like evolutionary purposes of like, we, we used to live in like groups and camps and things like that. And I think that there's still some hard wiring in us that makes us want to kind of move in that direction. But I think that from, from the perspective of people who are in it to try to make a dollar, I think that, you know, if you give somebody the direct answer to their problem, if you tell somebody, Hey, it's creating a calorie deficit, it's eating mostly whole foods, it's strength training. And I'd like you to also get lots of sleep and reduce your stress. Like that's a pretty unsexy answer, right? Like most people are going to brush that off. Whereas if you make it more exciting and you have like a kind of, uh, if you have a villain of the story, whether it's carbs or it's fats or it's sugar or anything like that, it's easy to pull people onto your side of the fence to make them believe like this is the one thing that's stopping them from, from making progress. Right. And so one of the big parts of that, that I find really fascinating is the aspect that like, you know, if you give people the answer, it's unsexy, but it's true. Everybody's looking for the sexy answer. And so if you provide that and you package it up in a way that has a lot of really great resale value, where 
you you don't give them really the answer. You give them a uh, a method, right? And so a big thing for me that I think about is methods and principles. Where I'm like, there's a there's a principle that's rigid. You have to adhere to it, and you can be flexible with the method. Whether it's you know obviously weight loss, um, you can do that with the method of using a vegan diet, a paleo diet, a keto diet, really any, any way of eating that you choose to eat, it can be achieved using that method. But if you give the person the principle, then you can't sell them the method. And I think that one of the big things is that there's a ton of people that are selling the method and not giving people the principle behind it as a way to kind of keep them on their camp, you know, whether it's demonizing carbs or demonizing sugar or demonizing fat, like if you can create one singular villain, in the story, it makes it much easier to kind of create that us versus them mentality, in my opinion. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I think just to your point, the boring stuff that actually matters is it it's not flashy. It's boring for a reason, but it also is it's the one thing that works over and over again. But I think, um, you know, as you were talking, it reminded me of something. If you remember those um, Pepsi versus Coke commercials where it was like Pepsi tastes better, no Coke tastes better. And they had this this whole campaign and they would go back and forth. Um, and apparently they were actually involved in that together. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that that's the case for, you know, dietary protocols and that there's like this keto camp that's in cahoots with somebody else. But like if you just think about it, the reason they did that was because the consumer believed that they only had two options. So any other soda was basically taking taken out of the game. It was just, you know, as a consumer, it was I have to pick either Pepsi or Coke. There was nothing else available. So I think that with our diets, we look at it as, you know, I'm either, you know, keto or paleo and you have these, you know, these ideologies almost. And it's like, well, these are my only choices. So I better just align with that camp. And, you know, really anything can work. And, you know, talking about it from how does it fit within the context of your life? What are your food preferences? You know, is it sustainable long term? Are you checking the boxes of, you know, being able to enjoy it, being able to maintain a deficit, being able to, you know, walk more, strength train, sleep more, manage stress, like all these things that we know matter. Um, it's really hard to package that up into a camp and say, you know, this is this is actually the real option, which is it depends on you and your physiology and psychology and, you know, personal preference. Um, it's kind of hard to to put that out there and like scale it. So it's not something that's easily sold to the masses. And I think that's where we run into some challenges with trying to um, – you know, just uh, bust some of those myths that are that are constantly thrown around. Um, talking about you know demonizing one food group, I think something that I always hear is about meal timing. So like, if I take you know, okay, it's fine. You know, I can be flexible with my diet, but if I eat a cookie at twelve p.m., um, that's okay. But if I eat a cookie at eight p.m., um, it's just going to go right to fat. So give me your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, w one of the most interesting things about this is this is another prevailing myth that I uh, talk to people about a lot because they think that there's certain times that they can or can't have a food. Um, and one of the biggest, when you speak with somebody who's actually informed, who believes it, they think that it comes down to insulin sensitivity. Um, and I do agree that like there are changes and fluxes in insulin sensitivity throughout the day and things like that. But the reality is we all know what the biggest driver of your ability to lose or gain body fat is going to be your overall uh, energy intake and energy expenditure for the day. And if all things are equal at the end of 24 hours, and it, it applies to the same thing with like, um, like meal frequency as well, right? Where it's like, 
you can have any food at any time of the day and you can have it split up into as many or as little meals as you would like. And as long as you're consuming the exact same amount of energy and it's coming from the exact same kind of quality of foods that are the same breakdown of like, you know, proteins, fats, carbs, fiber, all those kinds of things, then you're, you're burning and you're taking in the exact same amount of food. So the end result, kind of like a math equation is going to be the exact same. And while there are fluxes in insulin sensitivity, like people will talk about, at the end of the day, that isn't going to be the biggest driver of your ability to lose or to gain weight. It's not going to be a change in your insulin. It's really going to come down to your energy intake, not to make things too too reductionistic, because there's a lot that goes into the whole calories in versus calories out equation. And it doesn't mean that they're always going to be the exact same every day. But if you are using kind of a guesstimate, and you're getting in there and you're measuring things, then you're going to be able to measure that stuff pretty well, you know, within a couple hundred calories for most folks. And that's going to get you to where you want. But I think that the biggest thing is um, with, with meal timing for somebody who is trying to lose weight, it's not going to make a big difference because as long as you have the same energy coming in and the same energy going out, you're going to end up with the exact same result. So um, that's kind of my stance on it, but I'm definitely curious to hear where you're at on it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I don't want people to think that we're over here saying that you know, insulin sensitivity doesn't matter and hormones don't matter. I mean, I just got off a, I finished recording with Sam earlier, Sam Miller, and we did an entire hour talking about hormones. Um, Obviously they play a role, but again, it does come down to how they are impacting the energy in versus energy out equation. Um, You know, there can be some outliers in that, but, you know, I think that when we talk about sustainability, this is the the one thing that anytime I get this question, it's like, well, how does that fit within your life? So if somebody says, you know, I, I read this study where it's like, you know, 40 grams of protein per meal sp- spread throughout, you know, five meals per day is optimal. Okay, that's great. How does that work within your life? And so, you know, an important thing to note about studies is that they're taking an average and they're taking people uh, and reporting you know, there's individual variants across the board, but they're reporting the mean. And, you know, oftentimes – there are other studies that will show something different. So we have to keep into consideration all of the research. And then the only thing that matters is N equals one is how does that work for you? So if I'm somebody who I feel like, you know, I heard this, this myth out there, I heard this information where if I eat six meals per day, it's going to rev up my metabolism because I'm constantly, you know, eating and uh, I'm, you know, getting this thermic effect and my metabolism's on fire. So I'm going to do that. But I'm also somebody who has to sit in meetings all day. Um, you know, I have a, a highly demanding job where I really only have two to three pockets of time where I can where I can eat. Um, then it kind of falls apart because sustainability is going to be the most important thing above all else. So again, if if energy is equated and we look at you know kind of how those macros are divided, but assuming that we're talking about the same balance. Um, if I'm going to eat two meals per day or I'm going to eat six meals per day and you know macros and calories are equated, um, it's really not going to make a difference. And it's just about what feels right for my unique physiology and my schedule and my life. And that's kind of you know my approach from that. Um, so that brings up, I guess, you know, along the same lines of meal frequency. Let's talk about fasting because that is kind of a, a pretty popular topic right now. And I think it's another – I think, yeah, again, it's just human nature. Like we take a concept that has some value and we take it to the extreme. So I want to get your take on where you stand with, with fasting, like where it's appropriate and then maybe some common misconceptions that are out there about fasting. 
Yeah, absolutely. So one one quick last thing about the whole eating late at night is I also think that something that we have to take into consideration too is the kinds of foods that are typically eaten late at night, right? So like people probably aren't eating late at night and over consuming like broccoli and steak and sweet potatoes. It's like if you're going to eat generally crap food because you're bored, that's that's typically going to be the time for it as well. And so I think that most people conflate that as well where they're like oh it has to be eating late at night it's not the fact that i just housed an entire pint of ben and jerry's at the end of the day and i think that that's that's kind of something that a lot of people don't always factor in as well Is like you're, you're generally nobody's nobody's getting up and crushing a pint of ice cream for breakfast it's always going to be late at night and so it's not really the time of day i think i think it's also the kinds of foods that are being taken in as well yeah for sure um so hopping on to the idea of fasting now, fasting is a really interesting one um, because it's something that I've experimented a lot with, and I do think it can be effective. In my experience, I've actually found it to be far less effective for uh, women for the most part. Uh, I think just based on evolutionary reasons, like they are quicker to adapt. They have quicker drops in leptin. They have a number of other issues that will crop up uh, quicker and in a more significant fashion than anything that I've seen with males who have used it. So uh, that would be the very first thing is that I think that women do need to use a lot more caution when it comes to fasting, because in a very real way, they're just more responsible for the survival of the human race than you and I are. For sure. And so because pregnancy is such an energetically demanding uh, task for them to go through, their body is very sensitive to the amount of like big drops in energy that they'll experience with something like fasting. And I think, you know, they will, They've shown that women actually out-survive men in things like times of starvation and internment camps because they adapt so much quicker to big drops in energy. Now, that's really great for survival, however, not so effective when it comes to fat loss for them. So that would be the very first thing with with fasting that I don't really um, that I usually talk to people about is that you know it may not work as well for women just because they are going to be quicker to adapt. Um, one of the other things about fasting is that people do see it, like you were saying in the very beginning, as more of a magic bullet than anything else. They just assume that, you know, if you fast, it kind of doesn't necessarily mean that you still have to be in a deficit. Uh, for a while there, I was hopping on the phone and it seemed to be, you know, when things become a hot button topic like fasting or like keto, um, when I get on the phone with people, I hear a lot of people saying that they're doing it, but it's not working. And so one of the biggest things that I've seen with fasting that actually makes people shoot themselves in the foot is they don't eat until, you know, noon, maybe one, maybe two, if they're pushing things a little bit further. And then what will happen is it almost creates like this hunger bottleneck where the person will overeat later at night when they do actually kind of break their fast. Um, and then they end up gaining fat or they don't end up losing any fat at all. And it's because they're not taking in their energy, their energy balance equation kind of into this all. They just assume that by not eating for a certain period of time, it nullifies whatever eating they do later on in the day. And that's probably one of the biggest things. Um, another thing is like fasting can have boosts in your growth hormone, but it doesn't always mean that that's going to equate over to anything significant in terms of like muscle gain or fat loss or anything like that. Um, and I do think that fasting is a very, very interesting tool. I think that, um, cause I've experimented with like 24 hour fasts and the, I think the longest I've gone before is like 36 and stuff like that. You know, it is a effective tool, but at the same time, we need to recognize it for what it is. It's, it's a tool and a method to create a deficit. Um, and if you use it like that and you treat it like that, I think you take away some of the magical powers of it and you recognize it for what it kind of is. Now, the interesting aspect is when you start to look at some of the longer fasts that people do, where it's like three or five days and it's a water only fast and how there's the, you know, 
autophagy that takes place where you kind of uh, dispose of cancer cells that could become cancerous or the body will go into kind of like self-cleaning mode for lack of better terms. And that's where I think things get really interesting with fasting. But I think that a lot of people uh, kind of give it more power than it deserves when it comes to fat loss without recognizing what it actually is. Um, but I know that you do a little bit of fasting and things like that as well, especially given this three week mini cut we've both been on, I think we've both probably been doing more fasting than typical. So, um, I'd be here, I'd be curious to hear kind of like your thoughts and your experiences with it as well. Yeah, we're pretty much on the same page there. Actually, the longest that I've gone, I think was 60 hours. And, you know, for me, it's, it's, I think I like to put myself in just kind of detective mode and see how it feels. And I think from a psychological standpoint, it can be really beneficial. Um, sometimes, you know, people just have this way of rushing when there's a hunger signal. It's almost like, oh my God, what is this? I need to I need to cure this feeling right now. And there's nothing inherently wrong with a little bit of hunger. And I think that, you know, sometimes we have these outlets that we've, that it's just become second nature. Like we we uh, use food as an outlet sometimes. So from a psychological standpoint, I think for me, it was kind of eye-opening to just remove that completely and go for a long period of time where I knew I wasn't eating. And um, so I was more doing it from that perspective, which I thought was really, you know, it was interesting. It helped me. And, you know, again, I think from a health perspective, there's definitely some interesting research out there. I mean, I, um, you know, Dr. Walter Longo has, uh, you know, a ton of great stuff about the five-day mimicking fast and, you know, just prolonged fasting in general and, you know, the health benefits. But again, like you said, it's just one tool. And there's also some studies that suggest from a cell autophagy standpoint that just a calorie deficit can achieve the same thing. Um, And then we also have to consider context. So like you mentioned, um, you know, females, I've had the same experience where women don't, um, you know, don't respond as well for the most part. I think that, you know, if it's just a daily kind of 12 to 13 hour fast, most women can do that just fine. But once we start to get longer than that, um, there may be some hormonal implications there. Uh, But it's, you know, as far I think where it gets kind of overblown is when people sell it as this magic solution to weight loss. It's like, we're going to condense your your feeding window and there, then you can just do whatever the fuck you want and all this you know fat's going to magically come off you. And I think that's where it gets blown out of proportion. Obviously, that's not the case. It's really about um, a way to kind of manipulate calorie intake and whoever is, is pushing that out there is just hoping that by condensing the feeding window that you'll consume less food overall and then, you know, just go on and tell all your friends how great fasting is. And, and, you know, that's kind of where I feel like it's misleading. And I think if we talk about it from a, you know, as a tool where it might be, where it might have application and where it might do a little bit more harm than good, um, then we're fine. As long as we're, again, it always comes down to education. It always comes down to context. So I think that's going to be the most important thing. Yeah. And like one of of the really interesting things that I find with fasting too, is for people who are afraid of hunger, it can be a very, very good adherence tool. Because if you teach people that like, Hey, if you can say no to food as a whole for a period of time, you can say no to any food at any time that you want. It really opens up their eyes to how much more in control they are than they kind of give themselves credit for. I think fasting can be a very interesting tool for that. Um, Other people who I've worked with who have had a very real kind of visceral fear of, of hunger, whether it's due to some past trauma, whether it's due to the way that they were brought up, a multitude of different things. I think that it's really powerful for those people to see that they can go hungry for a little bit of time when they're fasting and it doesn't have any downstream effects. Like this past week, 
I went and uh, one of the talks that I did at F45, I just had such a busy day. I literally did a 24-hour fast. I went and I gave an hour and a half to talk at a gym um, off of slides and like did a full Q&A and everything. And I was perfectly fine. Like I didn't have any huge dips. And like it was it was partially planned, but it was also partially I just got so busy later in the day. I didn't have time to grab any food. And I ended up being totally fine. And the really interesting thing is that your hunger will typically spike at about you know, I'm sure that you know this going 60 hours. It's like your hunger will typically spike at about the same time, but it goes away after about 10 to 15 minutes. And you, in the same way that if you had eaten and satisfied that hunger, you stop thinking about food in the same way that, you know, when that hunger comes, it also goes. And when it goes, you stop thinking about it. And I think that most people assume that with something like fasting, they're just going to be hungry all the time or they wouldn't be able to do it because they would just never stop thinking about food. And I think a big part of it is very, very psychological for a lot of people. Um, and then kind of going back to what you were talking about a little bit earlier in the podcast with people having an approach that actually fits their lifestyle. I know a lot of people who just don't give a fuck about breakfast. They don't care about it. They don't want to eat it. But for many years, they've been feeding themselves breakfast because they've always heard that it's, you know, the healthy thing to do, that you have to eat breakfast to kickstart your metabolism in the day without realizing that they're actually going against something that's sustainable for them. And if they have weight loss goals, just removing breakfast is a really effective strategy for reducing your calorie intake for the day. And so I think that there's a lot of really, really fascinating parts of fasting, whether it comes down to the psychological aspect of giving people better control over their food intake, um, whether it comes to adherence or whether it comes to just creating a new framework that better fits somebody's overall lifestyle. And I think that all those are really, really interesting parts of fasting that don't get enough play when it comes to how effective it can really be for certain people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and those are definitely some of the positives, I think, from uh, on the flip side of that. You know, we sometimes come across people who use it almost as punishment, like they overindulged. And so now I'm just going to punish myself by not eating. And obviously from a psychological mindset standpoint, that's going to have the adverse effect. That's going to get you into this cycle of restrict and binge, restrict and binge. Um, so there is the other side. And as you know, we've been talking about, like context is so important. Um, another thing that I hear about fasting or just something – uh, where you're going like very low calorie for a certain amount of time is this concept concept of detoxing the body. Um, so let's let's talk about detoxing in general and if you see that or what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I think that one of the really interesting things about detoxes is also talking about context, right? Like nobody's going on a detox when they're feeling really great about the way that they've been eating everybody chooses to go on like a detox or a cleanse or whatever you'd like to call it probably after, you know, coming off a food bender and feeling kind of like shit about themselves because they've been very overindulgent. Right. So we always need to look at things with like, well, why are you starting this? And generally it's because the person's trying to make up for something, usually like a pretty big food bender or something like that. So the person's already coming in probably a little bit heavier than they were in the past, having been a little bit overindulgent, not even necessarily fat, but probably just retaining some water weight. And then most of the detoxes and cleanses that I've seen, what they do is they put people on very low calories. They give them juices and supplements and tell them to eat pretty much like a raw food vegan diet. And so what you're doing is you're taking somebody who has essentially been carrying around a little bit more weight than normal because they're retaining a bunch of water and probably have a lot of food stuff left in their digestive system. And you're jamming them on a raw food, low calorie, semi-liquid diet where you're giving them a ton of fiber. So naturally they're going to go to the bathroom a lot more frequently. 
you're giving them a bunch of liquid. So like, obviously they're not eating solid food. It's going to be easier for them to stay in a deficit. And so at the end of the day, I think that what it really does is it fools people into thinking that this is an effective long-term strategy. And that's why you hear from so many people who do a detox, gain the weight back, and then go back and do it again. They're never being told about the actual reason behind why they're losing the weight, why, why they feel better on it. It's like, yeah, if you go from eating a real crap food diet to eating pretty much like a raw vegan diet where you're just being jam packed with tons of micros, you're, you're obviously going to feel significantly better. And then also being honest about the fact that like we have a liver and kidneys for a reason. And if you're having a legit problem detoxing, it means that you have organ issues. And if you have organ issues, don't go, don't go see an Herbalife rep, go see a legit doctor who can help you. You know, and so I think that that's the real thing is that people call something a detox without telling people what it really is. Like, oh, well, you know, the reason that you're losing weight is because you're detoxifying. It's like, well, can you explain to me the toxins that are being removed in your body by eating a raw vegan diet, drinking a bunch of fruit and vegetable juices and taking these supplements? Because I don't think you can. And so I think that it's that people are being sold one thing, but being given something else. It's the old kind of switch and bait within nutrition. And I think that you know, people will lose weight very quickly when they do it. And so immediately it gets people excited because they give so much weight, pun intended, to the scale. And so that's kind of how I come at detoxes and look at them is, you know, you're just really taking somebody and jamming them in a super deep deficit. You're like, you're not really detoxing them. You're just putting them in a super heavy deficit and probably making them go to the bathroom a lot more. And like, you're going to lose weight when you do that for sure. But they're not really detoxing anything. They're just you know, probably eat a little bit better and feel better. So that's kind of how I come at it. But let's let's look at it from a habit standpoint. Like what are we creating as far as the big picture? Because if I go through this, you know, period of eating a shit diet and then I do this detox and, you know, I go through this and I lose a bunch of water weight and I'm feeling good about myself. What, what is that going to, what message is that going to send? Basically, I'm not going to change anything about my lifestyle. I'm just going to use that Band-Aid fix whenever I need to. So it's like, oh, well, I have this this secret you know, ace up my sleeve that I can pull out when I need to. But really, I'm not doing myself any favors. I'm still you – know, I'm not actually changing my behavior. I'm not building any sustainable habits. I'm just – I've got this – this thing that I can fall back on because it worked for me. So then I'm going to go back to the old way that I was doing it. And then when I start to feel shitty again, I'm just going to rely back on that detox. And I think it's one of those things. And um, I don't know if it's, you know, if I'm allowed to call out names, but, <laughs> but I thought it was funny that when Oprah invested in Weight Watchers, she was like, you know, the reason I invested is because they have such great, um, you know, people who, do the program, they leave, but then they come back and like they, they constantly come back. And she was talking about how great that was. And I was like, if you think about that, what does that say about the product? It means that they get a short term result. They can't sustain it. And then they feel like they have to go back and do it again. And that's kind of the nature of, of a detox. It's like, that's kind of the pattern that we're setting up is, is, you know, we're not actually teaching anybody any long-term sustainable habits or behavior changes. We're giving a bandaid fix they're inevitably not going to be able to sustain it. And then they're going to come back for more because now that association has been made that the detox was the reason that they had that period of success. Um, so it's, it, like you said, it's kind of that, that bait and switch. And it also plays on, you know, a psychological piece where 
we feel like anything that results in weight loss by any means necessary equals success. And so it's just a matter of trying to reframe that perspective and understand that we have to we have to zoom out. We have to see the big picture. We have to think about it as you know, we're in this for life. And what did, what did I learn about myself by going through this? You know, is there any validity behind, you know, what I'm being sold? And, you know, sometimes um, it just, you just kind of have to sift through the bullshit to get to um, quality information. Sorry for the little tangent there, but it gets me fired up when I think about how. I think that one of the other big things that you kind of hit on a little bit, um, even with regards to like this, how, how this and fasting can be connected as well, is I feel like it can be used as a form of punishment and it is, it can become kind of a glorified restrict and binge cycle where somebody's like, Oh, well, you know, I'm going to eat like shit because I have this detox coming up or like, it's okay to eat like shit for a really long period of time. Cause I'll just detox. And I think that, um, it can become kind of a glorified, uh, a glorified version of that for a lot of people too. You know, like you were saying they, they have that ace up their sleeve that they can always turn back to, um, without realizing like they're not actually setting up any sustainable habits. They're not changing any behaviors. They're not putting themselves on a path to being successful long-term because short-term adherence gets you short-term results. And for anybody who wants to change their lifestyle and wants to make it something they can do for the remainder of their life, you're going to have to think beyond your 21 day detox to make that happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and while we're on the topic, is celery juice really a thing? Because I feel like somebody, I can't remember who it was. One of my boys sent me like a, a meme about celery juice. And I was like, I haven't even heard, is this becoming a thing now that people are pushing celery juice as a legitimate protocol? I, I guess so, man. I don't, I don't <laughs> I'm not surprised by anything anymore, dude. Yeah, really. <laughs> like, I don't know. I feel like if you can, you can repackage anything and, and make it kind of sexy in the industry. I don't know. There, there's a guy, I'm, I'm not even sure what his name is, but there's a guy out there who's been pushing this, who, uh, who has like repopularized it. And I've had a few different people like send me his memes and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's just scientifically not correct. So I'm not sure why he is able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, Yeah. So let's talk about other controversial topics. I want to touch on artificial sweeteners and what your take is on that. Yeah. So I think that artificial sweeteners are a really interesting topic because um, they honestly haven't been around for a super long period of time. So like to say that we know what the ramifications of artificial sweeteners are going to be in a 50 year, uh, like longitudinal study or something like that. We, we, we can't say that. Right. But I feel like a lot of the times people are taking artificial sweeteners and they're blowing them out of proportion in regards to taking a study that's been done on mice or done on people who are obese and then trying to, or even an in vitro cell and applying it to regular everyday, like living humans. And I think that that's where a lot of people get into issues. So I know that one of the very first ones that I came across that piqued my interest was they were talking about, um, I think it was like cancer risk and they did it in mice and you were looking at all the negative ramifications that came about and you're like, oh man, this doesn't like, this doesn't look good. You know, it's in mice. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep some, you know, sensibleness about it. And uh, you look at it and you go, oh, well, the, the dose that they gave them is the equivalent to a human drinking like 1200 cans of Coke. And I think that w one of the things we ha always have to be aware of whenever it comes to anything that is sensationalized, like artificial sweeteners, is number one, are they doing it in humans? Number two, what's the dose like? Because, you know, there's the age old saying the poison is in the dose. I would like you to point me into the direction of somebody who can drink 1,200 cans of Diet Coke in a day. Because I don't think there's anybody out there that can. And number two, like, we always have to keep a level head about, in the context of an overall healthy diet, how does this play in? 
So like a perfect example of this would be, I worked with a guy a long time ago who came to me and he was drinking nine Cokes a day. And so for him to ask him to give up all diet Coke and to switch over to water was unrealistic. You know, he'd been drinking nine Cokes a day for a long time. And so what I had him literally do is I go, how many out of the nine Cokes per day, do you feel like you could switch out for a zero calorie diet Coke? And he goes, probably like three, four. I was like, cool, let's do that. He started immediately losing a pound to a pound and a quarter per week because what he did was he took out something that was full sugar, full calorie and exchanged it for something that was zero calories. And they've shown, you know, in studies where they had a two groups and people that did or no, this one was a meta analysis. I think it was 15 or 21 studies that were all the combined data from them. And you look at it and you go, okay, well, they compared people who were eating full, full calorie, full sugar drinks to people who are doing diet drinks. And the people who were doing the diet drinks, they lost more weight, their BMI went down, their waist circumference went down, all the markers of like good healthy weight loss were achieved with people who were taking in the zero calorie artificial sweeteners. Because at the end of the day, the big thing is energy balance. There's also the aspect that people will say that you will have an artificial sweetener and it will trick your body into wanting to eat more because it'll, you know, supposedly spike your insulin. And, and my, the way that I always look at it is I'm like, yeah, you could spike insulin and that definitely you probably don't want to abuse that system by any means. But at the same time, if you're spiking insulin, but you're consuming something that's zero calorie, you're not going to have any energy to store. So why does that really matter that much? You know, and I think it's, it's looking at things very logically in the, in the context of an overall healthy diet, having a few zero, zero calorie, like artificially sweetened beverages I don't see an issue with that, especially for somebody who's trying to modify, you know, a, a large part of what you and I have been talking about today has been around the modification of habits and how that fits into somebody's lifestyle. So if we can take somebody who's looking to lose weight um, and swap out something that is full calorie for something that is a zero calorie version that's artificially sweetened, we're helping them to better modify a habit that fits within the context of their lifestyle. And is isn't going to feel like such a massive shift, but can actually get them way better results. And so I just haven't seen any evidence on my end that would point to artificial sweeteners being a huge concern for your average person um, on a multitude of different home fronts, man. I mean, like before the podcast started, you and I were talking about the correlations between artificial sweeteners and obesity and one of the specific studies that we had both seen and how they kind of confused uh, correlation and causation where it's like if you have somebody who is because there, there were people and they were like, these people who are obese, they consume more artificially sweetened beverages that are zero calorie. So they made, they jumped to the conclusion that artificially sweetened beverages cause obesity without taking into consideration that like, if somebody's overweight, they're not stupid. They know that they're overweight. They can tell you don't need, like nobody needs to remind them of that. But then every time they go see a doctor and a doctor, if they're lucky enough, you know, talks to them about the overall context of their diet, you know, they've probably been told a million different times, you shouldn't be drinking a ton of Cokes. You should probably be having something that is lower calorie. And so they look at something that is zero calorie and is artificially sweetened. And they recognize that as a better option because it is. And so now we're looking at like a study like that one and not connecting the dots very effectively. We're, we're looking at it and saying, well, it causes it instead of looking at it and looking at the person in front of you and saying they probably recognize that they're overweight or that they're obese. And so they're trying to actually make a better choice for their weight loss. And just not, I think looking at things is not always so black and white is, is a really effective way to kind of approach artificial sweeteners. Um, but I haven't really seen anything on my end 
that would point me to them being a net negative for most people. But I'd love to hear kind of what you have and what you've seen, man, because I know that you're a well-read guy yourself. Dude, I think you nailed that and wrapped it up so perfectly. And the only other area that people will bring up is the fact that, you know, it might have an impact on the gut microbiome, which truthfully, we just don't know enough to say that for sure. You know, we had talked about the one study that was done in vitro on a single strain where it was like basically the equivalent of just pouring like packets of artificial sweeteners onto one cell and like trying to draw conclusions from that as if it had any validity. validity. But I think that, um, you know, from a gut health standpoint, we have to look again, like we like we've been talking about um, the overall context. So, if you have a lot of healthy habits in place, the gut ecosystem is going to be a positive one. Where a you know a few artificially sweetened beverages, it's not going to do much damage, in my opinion. So, you know, we may down the road find out that you know artificial sweeteners do impact our our gut microbiome in a negative way. And we can say that for sure. But right now, there is nothing out there to suggest that that's the case. And I think that, um, you know, they've even done studies and there was a recent one that just came out, which I believe is also a meta-analysis, which which talked about the um, satiety signaling and basically showed that there really wasn't a difference. Like some people um, were making claims that artificially sweetened beverages can trigger more hunger and cause you to overeat in the long run. And, you know, this this uh, meta-analysis showed that that really wasn't the case. Uh, maybe on an individual basis, you might have, you know, because we're all different, somebody might get triggered, you know, with more hunger because of a Diet Coke or something like that. But to say it across the board and speak in generalities would be, you know, unfair and really just not accurate. So, um, you know, I totally agree with your assessment. Um, so, it brings up the point because there's so much misinformation out there. How do we start to sift through the bullshit? How do we start to really just um, educate for just the average person out there who wants to live a healthier lifestyle and wants to make well-informed decisions? How do we kind of piece apart what's um, you know what's what's good quality information and and what is is not? Yeah, I think that most of the time, good quality information when you look at it, you're going to find it from people who aren't being too overly dogmatic, to be honest, um, at least in my, in my personal preference, like the people who I feel are being the most honest, aren't people who always talk in absolutes. I think they're the people who are confident enough to say, you know what, like it depends. I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, and I think that that immediately always makes me trust those people. I think that one of the other interesting things that, um, a lot of people will, will bring up to try to prove a certain diet is to like, if people are looking to get healthier, if they're looking to, live kind of like a better optimized life, I think we have to look at some of the people who have done that before us. And I think that the really interesting thing is to look at places like the blue zones, man, where it's like, you know, there's principles of blue zones where they eat a lot of plant matter. They have a sense of community. They don't have like an overwhelming amount of stress. They, you know, eat until 80% full, like all these things that you can take it and you can incorporate it into any kind of dietary approach that you would like. But I think that where, where we really should be putting our focus is on the principles of like better health and nutrition for people. And kind of what, what I would equate that down to for most folks is going to be, you know, not eating too many refined foods. I think it would be really increasing your overall fiber intake from like fruits and vegetables, consuming whole sources of protein, healthy sources of fat, um, consuming enough carbohydrates to support your goals and to support your overall health and to make it so that your diet is enjoyable and things like that. And I think that, one of the big problems that people see and the people they end up following is they end up following people who are very uh, polarizing with their information, not polarizing because 
they are making a, um, I mean, polarizing in regards that they are making a super solid stance um, that seems kind of outrageous because it is. And I think that a lot of people will do that to gain traction, but they're also misleading people. And I think that that's where a lot of people run into it is they, they follow the people who are pitching the celery juice because they think that that's the right move. And because they've seen, you know, a bunch of different posts where people are also benefiting from it. And so at least in, in my personal opinion, I think that the people who don't always speak a thousand percent absolutes, the people who are talking about principles instead of always talking about methods, I think is a big thing. Um, I think that the people who are always trying to tie everything back into their specific approach to, to dieting or their specific diet, like always trying to be in your face with it. There's always a little bit of like, uh, I feel like you're, really on somebody's team. And for me, those are kind of two of the big things that, that make me trust somebody more, but also make me think that, yeah, you're like, you're putting out good quality content that is designed to truly help people. Uh, what are the, what are the signs that you look for in people who are putting out content and things like that, that make you kind of be like, yeah, like I would feel comfortable recommending this to a client or getting somebody started on a guide from this person. Yeah. So I think what you said about speaking in absolutes is it's just a major red flag. When I look at that, you know, my initial thought is you're just a one trick pony. Like that's all you've got. And um, and especially when you see like if it's on social media and somebody will counter, it's usually that they don't counter with more information. They usually counter with emotion. And so you see like an argument take place and and it gets very heated. And that's usually a sign that uh, they're just They've got a clear dog in the race and they're not really trying to provide quality information. Um, so one thing that I look for when I'm looking for good information um, is what's the context? So I look at it as this person's you know, delivering information, but they're also providing context around it. And that way I can see the big picture. So you know, there's like we talked about all these different dietary protocols and none of them are inherently bad. It's just how does that fit within to the context of that person's life? So if I hear somebody talking about keto and they're talking about it from a you know medical standpoint or if they're giving me context about you know somebody who just wants to be healthy and they're not super active and you know and it and I can kind of see where they're going with the context around it, then I'll pay attention and you know you know do a little bit more research on. Uh, whatever principle they're talking about. Um, and then I think, you know, from a consumer standpoint, I think that context conversation is imperative. Like you have to look at whatever information and apply it to yourself. So if somebody is telling you that you should never eat breakfast, think about how that would fit within your lifestyle. Is that something that you could see yourself doing for the rest of your life? Maybe it is. And if it is, then great. Maybe you should consider that. And then we become kind of like our own metabolic detectives. But I think that you know, that's a great place to start when questioning, you know, am I really going to make a celery juice drink for the rest of my every day for the rest of my life? Probably not. So there, there's really not much to it. And, you know, it just, you know, once we kind of take that practical approach, um, understanding that anyone speaking in absolute certainties is probably full of shit. And, and once we can, you know, look at it, how it applies to, you know, our lifestyle and, you know, where we want to be and, and the goals that we're trying to accomplish, then, all of a sudden, some of those theories start to fall apart when we just look at it a little bit more logically and try to remo- remove the emotion because, you know, that's the other thing that we have to consider. Um, a healthy lifestyle and making changes and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, fundamentally change physically or, you know, just be healthier. It's it's an emotional process and, and I think that it can be a frustrating one because of the fact that there's so much information out there and it can be confusing and, it can, you know, so just, you know, understanding that, 
Um, as hard as it is, we have to remove the emotion from the equation and just try and take a step back and think in facts and think logically and, and try and place ourselves into the context of whatever the information is that we're consuming, if that made sense. Yeah, 100%. And I think that one of the things that also makes it really difficult for people um, that you were kind of touching on about the overabundance of information is that if people get that paralysis by analysis by trying to consume too much, they always are going to revert back to their old habits. And if you're reverting back to your old habits, those have gotten you the results to the current moment that you're at right now. And if you're not happy with those results, just think that you need to have different habits you're executing on. You need to be taking different actions if you want a different result. And so that's the big thing that I always come back to for people is I'm like, hey, I'm not saying that you have to trust me or that you have to trust everything that I say. I'm saying just pick a few things and stick to those because it's really easy to always be chasing the shiny object. And the reality is if you're trying to chase, you know, three different donkeys and you only have one ass to sit on the donkeys with, and it's like, you're going to be pulled in so many different directions. You're not going to end up doing anything very well. So for me, I think the big thing is being like, Hey, it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be Mike. I mean, probably it should, it should be Mike. He's a smart dude. But at the end of the day, the big thing is just, pick a few things and focus on those because if you're constantly getting overwhelmed by too much information coming in, then at the end of the day, your propensity to want to revert back to your old habits that have gotten you results that you're not happy with is going to skyrocket. Um, you know, I think that it's just one of those case in points where the easiest decision to make sometimes is no decision at all. And if you already have really deeply ingrained habits that have gotten you to the current moment that you're in, then those are going to be kind of more your autopilot. So I think that, just picking a few things, focusing on those and not trying to make it overly complicated is going to be the best path to success for a lot of different people out there. Yeah, well said. And one of the one last thing, as you know, we were talking about what we look for in a quality source, one of the things that always impresses me is if somebody has the ability to just flat out say, I don't know, like it's it's so simple. And I feel like um, just that concept alone, being able to admit that you don't have all the answers. But, you know, like for me. I'll, I'll like, there's a lot of things that I don't know about, but if, if I have a client that comes to me with a question and I don't know, I'm going to tell them, I don't know. And I'm going to tell them also, I'm going to do whatever I can to find out. So then I go on that hunt of, you know, who's the quality source that I can trust that I can rely on and then come back to them with, you know, here is what I found in my research, but I would also, you know, suggest that you look into things for yourself. Um, and that way we kind of have both set of eyes and we can come to a conclusion together. But I think just being, you know, from somebody who, um, you know, wants to provide education and content, like being able to admit that you don't have all the answers for me, that's usually a good sign that that person is, is putting out quality information if they're willing to admit that. Yeah. And I think one of the big things about that, I mean, like I absolutely love that. Um, I, that's what made me trust a number of different people in the industry is hearing them say that I don't know. What I think that it shows when somebody has the courage to say that is it shows that they're after the truth. They're not after boosting their ego. And I think that in an industry where there are so many egos and there are so many people who are really just trying to show how much smarter than other people they are, for somebody to be a little bit more egoless and to be able to be like, no, I'm really just in the pursuit of the truth. And because of that, I'm willing to admit to you that I don't know this always for me has just been like, damn, respect. Like that's, that's massive. Yeah. So I think that that's always been a big thing for me is like, you know that they prioritize the truth and being honest more than they prioritize looking like a know-it-all. And I think that that's always been something that, that really made me want to follow somebody more is when I heard that from them. Yes, 100%. And along those same lines for quality information and for entertainment, it really doesn't get any better than the stuff that you're putting out on a daily basis. So 
take some time and let people know where they can find you, how they can connect with you, um, IG, website, whatever you have to throw out there. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Um, so if you guys would like to connect with me, probably the area that I'm putting out the most content on would be Instagram. So you can find me as Alex underscore McMahon, which is M-C-M-A-H-O-N. Recognize it is not spelled how it sounds. Uh, underscore NTP. So Alex underscore McMahon underscore NTP. And then uh, I do a blog and newsletter. And you can find both of those on my website, which is EvolveNutritionalTherapy.com. Um, and then I also have a free Facebook group that I run that is the, uh, not the, but it's Evolve Nutrition Group. And so just go ahead and ask to get approved in there when you find us and I will get you guys in there. But yeah, my overall goal is always to try to, I mean, I think one of the big things that I realized after a bit is that most people aren't super entertaining with the info they put out. So I tried to make mine as entertaining as I possibly can, try to keep it fun and lighthearted while also uh, dropping some knowledge bombs from time to time. So Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and I can tell you from my personal experience, like I usually never have the sound on my Instagram, but whenever I'm checking through your stories, I always have to make sure I got the sound on to hear some uh, some humor in there. So keep it up. Um, love the stuff that you put out and uh, we'll uh, we'll push through this three-week mini cut together and I'm, I'm sure it'll be successful for both of us. And then I'm not really sure what direction I'm going to go after that. I've got some uh, some decisions to make. I'm I can tell you for sure I'm not doing a 20 pound bulk like you did. <laughs> that was brutal towards the end. I gotta say, like when that was over, I was very very happy. Yeah, I'm and sure. The, the crappiest part about it was it was you know it was in the middle of me moving to Denver. I didn't have a gym set up. Like it was just not a good period to be doing it. It wasn't smart, but I committed to doing it in front of like 46 people at the, at the mastermind. Yeah. So I was like you can't really back out now. Like you have to hit this. And so, yeah, that was the, the funniest aspect of it all was people saw me doing it and they go, Oh, it must be so much fun to eat all that food. And I go, yeah, it was fun for the first week and a half eating that much food. I go, but after that, it just became such a chore. I felt so lethargic. And so like, it was funny. I would fall asleep all the time. It was almost like I had like sleep apnea or something. I, I would literally, it'd feel like somebody shot me with the tranquilizer after some of my meals. Like it was, yeah, folks, don't gain twenty pounds in fourteen and a half weeks. It is a dumb. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the commitment was impressive, and I can totally understand that. Like when you, you probably just wanted to take some time to not even think about food after that. Oh, dude, I, I I did a lot of fasting after that. Yeah, I'm that's sure. when I'm like, oh, I don't I don't have to eat breakfast. I don't have to eat lunch. Like, let's just run with this for a week or two. I think it was maybe like maybe one or two days. I think it was probably the first day after. Um, I, and it wasn't like I did a 24 hour fast or anything like that, but the very first day that I went back to eating like a normal person and could like have salads and shit like that, I, I was down five pounds pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right. Well, I appreciate you joining me and dropping some serious knowledge. Um, thought this was a great conversation and I will talk to you very soon and see you in a couple weeks. Absolutely, brother. Thanks again for having me on, man. I appreciate it. All right. Take care.